Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. Dr. Samir Puri is a senior fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Samir is with us to talk about his book, The Great Imperial Hangover, and how the empires have shaped the world. Samir, welcome to Money FM to Weekend Mornings. Well, Glenn and Neil, good morning. Thank you for having me. Really pleased to be here. Great. No, it's great to have you. I mean, you speak my language with this book. As soon as I saw the title, I thought, nah, this is, this is the one for me, Glenn. We've got to have this guy on. Give us, the, give us the high-level picture of what this book discusses and what you found out in writing it. Absolutely. And Neil, funnily enough, the Americans wanted to rename it The Shadows of Empire, so I didn't like the word hangover. But, of course, what I mean by a hangover in terms of explaining the point of the book is it's about the long-term after-effects of having once been a colony mm-hmm. or once having uh, colonized other parts of the world. And if you say it like that, then that pretty much covers every country, every nation around the world. Without prejudice, the age of empires carried on right until living memory, until, you know, for some people, the, the 1960s, for other people, the 1990s in Hong Kong, for example. And so it's also still very current. And whether it's your parents or you personally, or even your grandparents, I think the first history lesson we always receive is that of our own family histories and the history of the country around us. Mm. And my book is sort of a fair-minded way of trying to grapple with what those legacies mean now in 2020 for the coming generations. And what, what does it mean? What, what does it mean? What do imperial hangovers do to us? I would imagine in some cases they're, they're actually – they leave a good legacy, right? Other cases maybe not so much. Right. And the debate is so polarized. You either have to be totally for them, as in empires made the modern world, or totally against them Mm. and say, well, empires in other parts of the world led to slavery and suffering. Well, I think, uh, Glenn, as you phrased it, about the mixed legacies, that's really what I'm trying to convey is it needs a little bit of delicate treatment. It's not about saying, here's some good things, here's some bad things, but it's about thinking about, and you know, the reason I wrote this book is, my own family history is rooted in the British Empire and migration. And I certainly wouldn't want to de-invent myself from history. I'm certainly very pleased to be British, mm. as your listeners can tell from my accents, growing up in London. But at the same time, I'm also very aware that there are some quite complex emotions and legacies that can arise if your forefathers, if your mm. ancestors are actually were on the wrong end of colonial uh, dominance. Which most uh, were, Maybe right? there's... <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's, it's very much an individual thing, and I'm not you know, telling people to think one thing or the other. It's just a spur to maybe think through some of those themes and, and what they mean to you personally. And it's such a fascinating topic with relevance to Singapore. You know, in uh, 2019, we had our bicentennial... I can't even use the next word. I was about to say celebrations, but that's the wrong word because it celebrates colonialism and the, and the arrival of raffles and should we celebrate the white man's invasion of a dead... So these were all... We couldn't even agree on the word, you know, bicentennial, memorial, whatever. So that gives you an idea of the polarised nature of it. I mean, to give you uh, an interesting anecdote, I spoke to someone uh, in Singapore government who said to me off the record, well, we're at least glad it wasn't the Dutch... <laughs> it could have been the Dutch, which is relevant to your point that f- for all the many, many negatives of British colonialization, opium, uh, I mean, there's a whole long list we could go into, but and, and the subjugation of another people, 
it opened up trade routes. It developed Singapore as a deep sea water, uh, deep sea trading port. The benefits of which are still seen today. So, is this some of the uh, the, the sort of polarized aspects that you're looking at? That yes, you must acknowledge the negatives, but you can't ignore the positive benefits of trade and commerce either. Neil, I think you know you and I are singing off the same hymn sheet here. I really agree with you, and especially the way you've described some of the things that Singapore has really benefited from and used really well hmm. following the departure of, of the British. And so that the analogy I use in the book is that living with a colonial afterlife or a hangover, it's a bit like the half-life of radioactivity. It just dissipates over time very slowly. I think it's really good, refreshing thing to be able to, for current generations, go back at the legacy and reassess it. Um, I wrote a new preface for the paperback, which just came out the 1st of July. I mentioned Singapore and I say, well, you know, it may seem like it's quite divisive here in Singapore, but actually, when you look at the way they did the art installation with the raffle statue yep. uh, in front of the OCBC building, so great optical illusion for those uh, who maybe uh, didn't notice it at the time. If you stood square onto the statue, it vanished. And the point being was to provoke people's ideas around and their imagination as to, well, do we need to pay homage to the British legacy or not? Compare that to sort of debates around tearing statues down in other parts of the world. I'd say full praise of Singapore. I've been really impressed since I've moved here for, for work that these are complex and emotive subjects, but they're generally dealt with quite maturely and without the toxicity that's characterised some of the post-imperial legacies in other former colonies in other parts of the world, not just former British colonies as well. All sorts of parts of the world, as we know, were sort of colonised or conquered by someone somewhere at some point back in time. We're talking with Dr. Samir Puri, a senior fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. His new book, The Great Imperial Hangover, How Empires Have Shaped the World. Tell us about some of the legacy, uh, British legacies of Singapore. What did you find good and bad, that were leftovers, that were hangovers here, or are hangovers here? I mean, it's got to be the names of things. That's the first. Um, you can't sort of walk for five minutes without bumping into a former British colonial administrator officer whose name has been bequeathed. And it's not just raffles. You know, it's it's all over the, the city. And, you know, it's, I've just been reading the Lee Kuan Yew book, uh, From Third World to First World, and he explains in that book why he decided to retain these statues and uh, retain that sort of image of, of understanding the legacy rather than trying to brush over it. I think for Singapore, that actually works quite well. Um, but I'd certainly say that that's one of the imprints. I'd also say that, uh, I mean, there's a lot of British people here. And, I mean, that's not a, an imperial legacy per se, but something I like to look at in the book is some very innocent things about where do we choose to go work as expats or foreign workers? Where do we choose to go on holiday? Where, when we look around the world, no matter our nationality, do we see more people of our kin or people who culturally seem similar to us? Why is it that so many British people like to come to Singapore? Well, there's obviously a long set of legacies. And I think moving those legacies into a very positive and sort of mutually beneficial position for the modern age is great. Before coming to Singapore, by the way, Glenn, I was a university lecturer in London, mm. and I taught at King's College London, had a, you know, quite a few Singaporean students pass through the uh, corridors there, often on Commonwealth scholarships. Once again, I think that's a nice positive example going in the other direction mm. of young Singaporeans who I'm sure I spoke to a few of them in my seminar groups back at King's in London. Of course, there's a fascination because Britain looms large over their upbringing. 
and, of course, learning the language, but also seeing the names of these streets, there's going to be a curiosity. Mm. And I think positively exploring that curiosity is a really good thing to make something very positive out of a legacy, which if you, we transported ourselves in a time machine, guys, I'm sure we'd be pretty shocked at some of the ways in which people treated each other 200 years ago, the way they spoke to each other, differing levels of you know, self-professed culture and all the rest of it, and some of the racism, not brushing all that aside. Mm. But we do need to reassess these legacies as we move forward into the future. And uh, does your book tackle some of the negatives? I mean, as a white man, I'll, I'll kick it off. I mean, just off the top of my head, you've got elements of the white is right mentality still persisting in this part of the world. Some people call it the Pinkerton syndrome, where the white man, the Caucasian, is put on something of a pedestal where other races are not. This is very much seen as a post-colonial, post-imperial hangover. Are these some of the elements that you discuss in the book? What, what are some of the negatives? Yeah, and I, I tread very respectfully on this topic because ultimately people's opinions are their own and it's not for me to preach one way or the other, but I think having a healthy awareness that Western Europeans in particular, followed by the USA, has had such an outsized influence hmm. across so many parts of the world, across Asia, parts of Africa, you know, where French and English and other languages like this are spoken. I think maybe having the self-awareness as to where that comes from, where that sort of sense that the world is your oyster and living a relatively privileged life, and I include myself in this category as well, um, where, what the historical roots are of that, and understanding where you sit in that sort of pantheon, I think is quite healthy for just self-awareness. But in terms of uh, the book, as I mentioned, like the book starts from a personal journey, which is, you know, I was born in, in London, I'm, I'm British in terms of education and upbringing, but I'm also Indian by, uh, by you know, parentage, and my family were born in Punjab uh, you know, two generations ago, and one generation ago in Kenya, which incidentally became independent from the British around the time Singapore did, 1960s. So I've always had that sort of inside-out sense of being British, which is, of course, I'm not white. So there are certain things that you're taught at home about the British Empire, about where you fit into the world, where your parents' experiences were at a lower level of a pecking order that may not necessarily translate to my experience now. Mm. But I'm really aware that you can't just take the world as it is for granted. Everything comes from somewhere. Mm. And I think it's just to round off that answer, uh, Neil, it's a great question. I think without trying to sound sort of doomy and gloomy about it, you know, the world is changing so fast. And this is something else I talk about in my book. It's about how history relates to, for example, the transfer of wealth more to China and to India, and especially you know, the most populous countries in the world, seem to be maybe the first and second largest economies in the world as well. Both India and China, India, of course, was colonized by the British as the Raj. China suffered at the hands of, of Japanese and European imperial powers a century ago. These are not incidental things. And it's not that people bear grudges, but because they happened and because there is a bit more of an evening out of global influence and wealth and there's more middle class people in Asian countries, whereas 50 years ago there definitely was not uh, in the sense of wealth generation and lifting people out of poverty. Um, the world in the future will be very different to the world that I was born into in the 80s and 90s. And some of those historical legacies will continue to shape uh, attitudes. They'll continue to maybe provoke a degree of resistance in some people to being able to sensibly and fairly understand why different people have got different perspectives about mm. not so much who rules the roost, but about, you know, the way the world is sort of ordered and how that's different to 50, 60 years ago. Mm. Samir, should that then, that reordering of the world, should that lead to some countries, and, and tell me if your research has borne out any examples, some countries uh, deciding to 
not rewrite history, but make the present and future different. For example, changing street names or or uh, focusing more on their own culture and and putting the colonial past more into the past. For example, in Singapore, we have seen uh, in the last few years much more of a focus going back to 700 years of the history. The bicentennial was a celebration of that, yeah. an acknowledgement of that. Uh, you know, yeah. se- 700 years of history versus 200. 150 or 200 yeah. years yeah. of history, right? Um, so there yeah. is, while I haven't seen any whole-scale renaming of streets here, uh, is are there any examples that you found where that is being done, where it's been effective and the right way to approach a colonial past and, and regaining a sense of self going forward? Yeah, it's a great example about Singapore. Uh, understanding the British period as one chapter in several in a book that really stretches much further back in time to the Kingdom of Singapore, yep. fishing villages, the integration with the Manet Peninsula, all these things which are documented in the museums here. I think that's really healthy. Um, down to renaming things, that's very much, I think, down to the country. And uh, listeners who, who are either from India or, or have been to India regularly will know that place names have changed yeah. uh, in the last yeah. 20, 25 years. You know, Bombay, of course, that's a Portuguese term for good bay. Mm. Uh, that's Mumbai. Uh, Calcutta, you know, the former centre of the British East India Company, uh, Robert Clive and everything else, that's, uh, that's Kolkata. To, yeah. to, you know, to be more in line with the way in which the word would be pronounced there, and so on and so forth. Uh, India is a huge country, Singapore is a tiny country, and I think um, living memory is an important marker. Mm. I think when memories and experiences drift away from living memory, when you lose that living link, I'm thinking about kids who are born now in the, you know, the 2010, some of the, our listeners' you know, own children, thinking about for what the imperial era will mean for them is just distant history. Yeah. Whereas still for me, it's a parental experience, and for a lot of listeners, it will be something they actually remember from the 60s as well. Think about you know, people born in the 2010s, 2020s. They're not necessarily going to go back to the 50s and 60s and feel the same profundity, feel that this set our country in the motion in a particular way. So maybe at that point, you then do a bit of refreshing. But I'm, I'm very much, you know, somebody who would not want to suggest uh, any country taking paths that cause more problems than they solve. Mm. These are very delicate issues. People's emotions are tied up with them. I've been amazed at the statu- statue debates in the UK and the USA. Statues of people who I think many uh, members of the public have never even heard of being sort of said, well, this person was implicated in that context in slavery. Then all of a sudden you get a lobby who are very passionate for, lobby very passionate against I bet you half these people never heard of Edward Colston or others, you know, sort of two weeks before. And that's not saying you can't have an opinion, Mm. but it just goes to show in other contexts how delicate these issues would be. Absolutely. And I very much look forward to reading your book. I have to say, The Great Imperial Hangover, How Empires Have Shaped the World. And Samir, if you'd like to add any comments, please feel free to put them in on our Facebook uh, page uh, where we've been talking now. Uh, Samir Pody, Senior Fellow at International Institute for Strategic Studies. Thanks for being with us today on Money FM. Uh, Glenn and Neil, thank you for having me. And uh, for listeners who are interested, the book's available in Singaporean libraries. And I've seen it on sale in Kina Kunya which is where I had to pick my copy up from because my own dele- uh, dis- you know, postal uh, sort of uh, package was delayed from the UK. So that's a <laughs> go buy a copy of my own book just to get a hold of it. I know that experience very well, my friend. In a word, where, where are you from in London? Just in a... uh, From East London born and grew up in Ealing, West London. Same as me. Which part of East London, very quickly? Right next to West Ham Football Stadium, in fact. Uh, I, grew up in, I grew up in Dagenham. My parents are from Forest Gate. 
There you go. Small world, indeed. We are literally next door neighbours, Clint. Next door neighbours. There you go. All right. Thanks again, Samir. We look forward to having you on again. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank, thank you. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.